This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Lisa Baron Carvajal. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Cristina Ramos about her fascinating book titled Bedlam in the New World, a Mexican Madhouse in the Age of Enlightenment, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2022. Welcome, Cristina. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Lisette. Thank you for hosting me. and happy to chat about my book. Okay, so I'm so excited to have you here today. This is a really awesome, captivating book. Um, but before we talk about the book, let's start by talking about your personal trajectory. So you're an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and you obtained your PhD at Harvard History of Science program um, after you received an MA from Duke University. So tell us more about your personal and intellectual journey. Our listeners always love to hear more about like the personal side uh, of these stories, how you came to your chosen region of study and your particular research interests. I'm sure happy to talk about that. Um, I think I knew I wanted to become an historian early on. Um lucky me or <laughs> unlucky me. Um, and I, I've, I long, um, I knew early on that I wanted to study, um, the early modern period. So, um, kind of 15 to 1800 has always been where I've been comfortable. So I've, I've long considered myself a, an historian, an early modernist. Um, and my training is actually in the history of, of science and, um, and medicine. So I was, um, trained as an undergraduate by Deborah Harkness, um, um, a, a really captivating uh, historian of early modern England, um, historian of science. Um, and then at Harvard, I was um, I worked under Catherine Park, an historian of um, late medieval um, and Renaissance um, it, Italian science. So um, it was kind of very traditional kind of history of science and medicine training is, is what I had in graduate school. Um, the transition to Mexico was a lot more complicated, I think, than it than it should have been. Um, uh, I didn't want to study Mexico initially. My family's from there. And um, I've been visiting Mexico since I was a kid. So it, it, it wasn't exotic enough initially. So I, I had long gravitated toward Europe. But um, I think around the time that I, I was in graduate school, I just, you know, you, when you get to graduate school, you start to think of yourself as, um, uh, you know, you, you, you start to realize that this is a professional career. <laughs> and um, it, it was harder at that time for me to, um, as, as, as a Latina, to kind of take myself seriously doing, um, do, doing Europe. So um, it was around that time, um, around the time that I started um, the history of science at Harvard, um, that I kind of knew that I was going to make the leap to uh, colonial Mexico. So that's kind of how the uh, m- my trajectory unfolded, and I haven't looked back since. I love that. Actually, for me, it's the other way around. I, I knew I was doing Colombia from the start, but I wasn't trained initially as a historian of science and medicine. 
So I love to hear like a uh, completely opposite trajectory. Awesome. You know, it's for <laughs> lots of people. It's uh, for his, a lot of historians of medicine. It's uh, in Latin America. It's the other way around. Um, <laughs> yeah. I always say I'm, I'm, I'm a great historian of, of medicine. I'm, I'm a terrible Latin Americanist because I'm, oh. I'm so <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I, I can tell. And, and you got awesome mentors. These two women um, uh-huh. are just amazing scholars. So, I mean, I'm sh- you were so lucky to have them. And this, this book is a product of that training of yours. And it's, you know, a great piece of writing, piece of history. We'll talk more about that. So tell us more a little bit about that, that kind of turning this the dissertation into a book so this is your first monograph right and um well now now we know that you didn't initially think of mexico as your region of study so how you came to not mexico only but to just one single institution Mm -hmm. uh, because this book is about one hospital the hospital of san hipolito in mexico and so uh how how did that happen? How did the project uh, change from dissertation to book? I always love to hear about these changes because I am writing my dissertation. Um, so it's always encouraging to hear and listen how people deal with that. Yeah, no. Um, so this project was born um, in the archives um, and the kind of panic and uh, trepidation and fear one feels when um, you're in the archive for the first time and the the kind of the, the documents that you're reading through don't really answer the questions that you initially had um, and the kinds of negotiations that you have to make in those um, in the early phases of research. Um, so that's how this project began. Um, I, I went to Mexico City on like an a experimental archival trip in my graduate training with a kind of a very broad interest in colonial hospitals. I've, I've long been fascinated with these institutions. I, I, I still am. I, I haven't left. Um, and um, I remember when, around the time I was reading for my um, comp exams, looking for a, a dissertation topic, I, I remember reading, um, it was just a casual aside, um, that the Spanish had founded um, hospitals throughout their New World possessions because of because of, of of course they did right. This was the Spanish colonialism. They're they're founding churches, they're founding monasteries, um, and they're founding hospitals. Uh, lots of them, and um, I just I found that really fascinating. Um, I had done a lot of reading on European hospitals, kind of pre-modern hospitals, and and how they um, combined you know the the care of the soul um, with the care of the body, and um, how they were you know foremost religious institutions um, informed by uh, Catholic notions of of charity and and poor relief. And I just became really interested in you know what what, what happens when you take this religious institution to this kind of Spanish-American setting. Um, so I had larger questions about um, the role that they may have played in in uh, the evangelization of the of the native population. Um, I, I was interested in how these institutions fit um, or the extent that they fit into the, the Spanish imperial project. Uh, questions about epidemic disease. I, I just had all these questions and none of them had to do with, with madness. Um, and then when I got to the archives, um, that was when I discovered that, you know, hospital records, they're the most boring, dry, mundane documents. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I was, you know, I, I went to the archives thinking I was going to find all this stuff about about patients, about doctors, about diseases, and hospital workers just aren't like that. They're 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 very bureaucratic. Um, there was like there was like some expenses, um, a lot of kind of church documents, just things that were very hard to decipher. Um, and um, I, I didn't have the training at the time to kind of work with those kinds of documents, so I didn't know how I was going to kind of put this together into a dissertation. So um, m- my default was always going to be the Inquisition. Because, you know, the Inquisition always has interesting stuff. So um, I remember kind of early on looking through the Inquisition records and kind of typing in hospital into the search engine. Um, and that was when San Hipólito kept popping up. And um, 
I, I knew there was a mental hospital in Mexico City. I had read about that. Um, I wasn't initially interested. I, I just, I didn't want to write about madness and I, I didn't want to work with the historiography. It's a, you know, it's a very kind of um, Eurocentric, um, France and England centric kind of literature. I just, I didn't want to go there, but these, the patients of San Hipólito, um, um, because they had um, mental illness often appeared before the Inquisition um, and the secular criminal courts. And um, and there was this interesting uh, uh, conversation happening um, at around the late 18th century where, um, you know, patients are increasingly getting um, diagnosis mad and they're getting funneled to San Hipólito. Um, so that was how the project began. It began with my realization that um, this was one of the, the few colonial hospitals that I could um, work on um, and I could write the institutional history that I had long been interested in in researching about. Um, but I also had um, unique access um, into the lives of um, some of its patients. Um, and as I kind of point out in the book, it's it's really in the records of the Inquisition, um, where you hear the patients, um, where you hear their voices, uh, where physicians co- come up, um, where you get all the kinds of uh, details that you don't really get in those hospital records. Um, so that was how the project came into being. Okay, so let's talk about the book. I love this. So in the book, very early on, you tell us that San Hipólito was a very special institution. And it's kind of funny that you didn't find it interesting at the beginning, <laughs> but because you make such a good case of how interesting it is as an institution. It is the first mental hospital of the new world. So its lifespan ranges from 1567 all the way up to 1910. So centuries, right? And even if it's so remarkable, its history has somewhat eluded traditional narratives of the history of psychiatry. So it's in, in a way, it's like a, an ideal thing to study, right? Something that has somewhat been a sort of hidden secret or maybe an obvious secret. So, so tell us a little bit more about um, why, why these traditional histories of psychiatry have made San Hipólito's history unfathomable. You mentioned this in the introduction. And, and perhaps why you chose to name, you know, to title your book Bedlam, you know, for, for, mm-hmm. because it, it is a name that is used for London's uh, Bethlehem Hospital, as you tell us in the introduction, too. So why is it important kind of to situate San Hipólito into like bigger histories or narratives about medicine, psychiatry and science? Yeah, no. So, so you know, Bedlam, as as you noted, is is the name of um, London's Bethlehem Hospital, um, the the most famous um, uh, or or infamous of of the early mental hospitals um, in Europe. It's it's not the first mental hospital um, in Europe by any means, but it is it is the most well known. Um, Shakespeare wrote about it. Um, Hogarth, um, the 18th century engraver, immortalized uh, Bedlam as, as it came to be known um, in art. Um, so in the popular imagination, um, you know, Bedlam, and this is where the word, you know, Bedlam comes from, um, has become synonymous with kind of the, the world gone topsy-turvy. Um, it, it's really a, a caricature of what people imagine um, these early um, mental institutions um, to be like barbaric, Um, places where um, men and women of of all classes kind of intermingle, uh, places that resort to um, chaining of patients um, to to beds and into cages. Um, It's really taken on a life of its own. Um, And and like early mental hospitals in general, um, there has been a lot written about um, Bethlehem as a, or Bedlam as a representation. Um, But there's actually very little about the hospital itself and how it actually um, operated um, in daily life. Um, And like San Hipólito's history, um, the the history of Bedlam, like the history of a lot of these institutions, is quite mundane. Um, It's not as sexy as the representations um, would have it. So, 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 given the hospital's notoriety, you know, um, the word bedlam appears in a lot of books on madness. Um, there's Michael McDonald's mystical bedlam. Uh, Jonathan Sadowski has a book called um, Imperial Bedlam on um, colonial Nigeria. Um, so it just it, it made a lot of sense that I would um, that I would title my book um, Bedlam in the New World um, because I was dealing with the first mental hospital um, of of the Western Hemisphere, um, the Hospital de San Hipólito. Um, and as as I know, um, 
this is a, a history that has been really erased in 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 histories of the, the histories of psychiatry, um, in part because um, the field has long been very Eurocentric. Um, so the rise of psychiatry is very much a, a European his- story. Um, centered in places like France, England, um, the United States. Um, um, it's a story about the rise of um, these medical men, kind of the alienists, these early psychiatrists, um, and how they kind of infiltrated the hospital. Um, and it's a story that has long been told. Um, it, it has long been wedded to certain teleologies. It's a, it's a story of um, li- liberation, um, kind of doctors coming in and, and chaining the mad, um, rescuing them from this kind of era of barbarity, um, or it's told in kind of a, a regressive lens, a la Foucault, you know, the story where you know madmen are once free, they're allowed to wander, and then they're confined, and um, everything's downhill from there, right? Medicine exerts a kind of moral repression uh, over the mentally ill. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's really hard um, when you're writing about this, A, to, to get away from the geographical centering of, of Europe, um, but also away from these kinds of larger uh, teleologies, these larger narratives about um, how the history of, of madness um, should be told. Um, and I, I I tried really hard in the course of, um, of putting this um, history together to try to say something different um, and to try to narrate the history of, of madness in in a different way. So, um, in, you know, in the story of San Hipólito, um, um, and I can say more about this, you know, it's, it's really a story about um, the centrality of, of religious institutions, of religious personnel, um, uh, of religious sensibilities to the management of madness in this kind of Spanish American setting, uh, long before um, um, the rise of psychiatry. Yes, so this is why this book is so important. I believe it's you're doing such important interventions by telling a really local, specific story, and so I think this book will be super important historiographically um i i i told you this before we started recording i think you'll get you know awards for this book so listeners you have to read it um so i mean let's talk more about it then let's talk about one of you know uh your arguments so you tell us that sunny politics serve as both a microcosm and a colonial laboratory of the hispanic enlightenment so let us start by talking about that concept of colonial laboratory. What do you mean by that? I know here, I mean, this. you're discussing a very specific set of uh, literature, but for our listeners that perhaps, you know, are not familiar with this kind of terminology, what do you mean by that? Why is it important to understand San Hipólito as a colonial laboratory? What, what does that do to you uh, and to us as listeners and readers? Um. Sure, sure. Um, and this is one of the developments too that I think happened when I was trying to kind of transition from a, a dissertation to a book. Kind of um, think about the, the the larger arguments and what what else you can say. Um, so I was constantly being asked when I was trying to revise this. I, w- I was constantly being asked to kind of to, to justify what I was doing vis-a-vis Mexico. Um, so it, it wasn't enough for me to say that I was writing about the first mental hospital of, of the new world or that I was including Mexico in a in a field that had long never talked about um, Latin America. I was constantly being told, so, so what, so what, you have to say something else. And that's one of the, the, the challenges when you're trying to speak to, you know, the history of, of medicine um, in science, which is still very much um, a, a, a Europe-centered field, although that is changing. So the idea of a laboratory came um, into into being when I was trying to think about, okay, well, what larger arguments can I make and how can I place this this hospital um, centered in Mexico City um, into conversation with larger developments taking place um, um, beyond its walls? Um, so that was how um, the concept of the laboratory came in. Um, in histories of, of 19th and 20th century um, colonialism, um, it's, it's, it's quite common to refer to the colonies as, um, um, as, as laboratories of modernity. 
um, or, or places of where experiments are done, um, where social kind of engineering projects are, are implemented, um, where new knowledge is produced about, about nature, about race, um, about lots of things. You know, um, this is what the colonies often do for, for the rest of Europe. Um, so, you know, building off of that, I, I, I suggested that San Hipólito was, was itself a laboratory um, that helped us to see the Enlightenment um, in, in different ways. So um, I decided in the course of, you know, revising the manuscript to um, really center the 18th century because this was a, an 18th century story um, and try to say something larger about what does the Enlightenment look like uh, from the vantage point of this uh, hospital um, in Mexico City um, and and what do we see and we see there um, I mean we see how new ideas emanating from the Enlightenment such as order, utility, um, rationalism, the public good, um, how they came to reshape um, new ideas about the m- medical um, and religious man- management of of mental illness in this period, um, but the laboratory also sheds light on the um, the centrality of religion of, of religious personnel, um, in particular the the brothers of San Hipólito who um, who ran the administration uh, well into from its inception well into the 19th century. Um, and were, were responsible for the administration of um, institutional health care for the mentally ill. Um, so the laboratory sheds light on their role. Um, and also, um, unexpectedly, um, the Inquisition. Um, the Inquisition as a tribunal that, that surprisingly, I, I argue, is, is one of the agents of medicalization in this period and uh, one of the tribunals that's really at the forefront um, in thinking about madness, thinking about uh, madness in medical terms, um, and thinking about new uses of these institutions uh, for the purposes of, of studying madness and, um, and diagnosing it um, in, in the most accurate way possible possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, I feel really ambivalent towards that <laughs> that challenge you face because it's it's a little bit frustrating that you were doing all of this important interventions talking about this the first mental hospital bringing into the conversation <laughs> into a literature center in Europe an institution that was neglected or silenced and that you were pushed <laughs> into like so what so what it's a burden that a lot of us <laughs> doing other regions have to face but at the same time I feel ambivalent because that push you into making such important and bold and you know fascinating interventions so I am I'm kind of ambivalent you know I can say (laughs) a little bit frustrated but also a little bit thankful um, because yeah it pushed you into kind of making broader arguments about the Hispanic Enlightenment in particular, but also about medicalization, um, also about, you know, colonial institutions. So we can we should talk more about about those arguments that you've kind of already mentioned. And, and I think they deserve a little bit more um, kind of delving into them. Right. So the Hispanic Enlightenment, you're dealing with a topic that for, you know, the last few decades has produced a lot of scholarship, um, a lot of new assessments about this topic have surfaced in in the last few decades. I had a lot of people here in the podcast talking about the Enlightenment. I had Bianca Premo, I had, you know, Martha Few, Adam Warren, Septor Torici, people you quote in your book, right? And and you're part of this bigger conversation about the Hispanic Enlightenment, about talking about the Hispanic Enlightenment in different terms. So here you follow scholars such as Martha Few, who, for example, have asked that histories of medicine, and here I'm quoting you, take a more complex or I'm quoting her, I believe, uh, take a more complex view of religion uh, for this period, the 18th century, recognizing its critical and complex role in the formation of modern scientific modernity. So, you know, maybe some of our listeners, if they're new, they'll be surprised by this pairing of scientific modernity and religion. Maybe others, they'll be more familiar with this 
when we talk about co-production or interdependence between religion and scientific modernity. Um, so tell us a little bit of about that literature, you're kind of, that traditional literature you're kind of trying to challenge um, because you're saying that some institutions that are usually considered like anti-modern, such as the Inquisition, are not. And that religious <laughs> religion can uh, foster enlightenment ideas and that the enlightenment processes you're tracking here were produced within the confines of a religious and charitable institution. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, and I I, I appreciate your <laughs> your ambivalence. Um, sometimes I get I was I was getting told that um I was just adding Mexico, um, and it was it was hard not to get defensive, but it 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 did force me to kind of hone in my arguments or, or really go out there and try to argue something. Um, so, um, and I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, Bianca Premo, whose, whose book on the enlightenment um, really inspired me um, and the work of, of Martha Few um, and Paul Ramirez as well. You know, people that um, have, have started to kind of center the enlightenment um, and think of Latin America um, as a place where we can talk about an enlightenment that took place um, and it not just be something um, kind of peripheral to what was happening um, in the rest of, of, of the world. So, you know, I, I decided to focus on the enlightenment, um, you know, because as I, I, when I wrote the manuscript, you know, it, it really turned into an 18th century um, story. And, you know, and I was thinking a lot about, you know, the Foucault and the history of madness and, um, and how I can resurrect that story and not kind of rehash um, the traditional, you know, great confinement argument and whether or not these institutions are about social disciplining. I, I didn't want to rehash that argument, but I, I did feel that I had something interesting to say about um, the Enlightenment and um, what it looks like from the vantage point of, of an institution that is dedicated to the, the opposite of enlightenment, to an unreason. Um, so, um, and there was, this, uh, there was this old school medical historian that I, I recall reading and he said, um, yeah, he was talking about Spain and um, how, you know, Spain had been at the forefront, really. Um, they had been um, very kind of precocious in um, dedicating a lot of resources to, to madness and to mental hospitals and um, and he says, you know, um, Spain is the cradle of psychiatry, um, but but he la- but she later neglected the infant. Um, and what he means there is that, you know, Spain was the cradle of psychiatry because it was one of the earliest places um, where mental hospitals appeared. But when he says she uh, she neglected the inf- uh, infant, um, what he goes on to say is that, um, you know, centuries of of religious fanaticism, of um, you know the the Inquisition, which is the pinnacle of of um, the kind of black legend, um, thinking about Spain, um, that all of that um, meant that all of these um, d- developments really a- amounted to nothing. Um, so in many ways, um, the, the the book kind of um, subverts that story, but also kind of reinforces it um, in that I tell a story about the centrality of religious sensibilities, um, everything from the charitable ethos that informed kind of the appearance of hospitals, um, San Hipólito in particular being dedicated to pobres dementes or or uh, mad paupers, to the role played by the Inquisition, um, that all of these religious sensibilities worked together in the 18th century to help transform the hospital and to turn the hospital into something more modern um, and to kind of fuel um, the, the medicalization of madness. Um, and I, I can say more about um, the Inquisition in a bit if you'd like. Yes, you can you can tell us more, but before let's tackle medicalization because I believe it's one of those big topics in the book, in the literature, and it's one of, you know, your arguments that are maybe or that may be counterintuitive for some for some listeners, for some readers. And here you argue that, you know, physicians are peripheral actors in the history of medicalization, which I'm laughing because it's kind of Usually it's the other way around. Um, So uh, it was not physicians or philosophers, uh, but the clergy, and particularly the brothers of San Hipólito, and more surprisingly still, the inquisitors. So tell us more about these agents of medicalization and why, uh, why is it important to bring these actors into this story, you know, these neglected or people that we don't think are drivers of medicalization? Yeah, no. So, um, you know, in my research, I, I realized 
early on that there wasn't a lot of physicians in the hospital records. Um, I think I never came across like a, a physician salary. I um, I came across very little doctors in the in the institutions records. Um, and you know I'll, I can talk about this in a bit. The doctors do appear, but they appear um, in the criminal and and the inquisitorial courts. That's where they're exerting influence, but they're not in the hospital. Um, and even then, it, it took me a while to kind of to drive home that point because I was just it's almost like you know we we just expect to see doctors there and we there's the assumption that they're there so you know and it's 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 commonplace now in the historiography of medicine in colonial spanish america to note that there was a a dearth of university trained practitioners um in the spanish american colonies um but what does this actually mean for um medical practice um that's not um something that i think we've we we talk a lot about um i'm thinking here um there's the the new great book by um Pablo Gomez and Diego Armu on the on the gray zones of healing, which really does deal with these um, other practitioners, these um, these unlicensed healers. But I think we're we're still trying to get a better picture of what medical practice looks like in the absence of a fully developed medical profession. Um, so in this in in the case of San Hipólito, um, really at the forefront was this uh, brotherhood, this uh, religious order um, dedicated to hospitals, and they were known as the Ordenes Hospitalarios. Um, and uh, there were um, four of them, but the one that ran this particular hospital was the Order of San Hipólito, um, and they they ran the institution for about three centuries. And from what I can tell, were um, not just well versed in religious forms of healing and consoling patients, but also medically trained as well. Um, so they're they're major players in this story, um, and the other major actors unexpectedly were um, the Inquisition. Um, the the Inquisitors are at the forefront in thinking about the insanity defense. Um, they're invested in the insanity defense, um, and they're invested in some of the most. Um, they're at the forefront in in furthering some of the most sophisticated um, and nuanced ways of of thinking about the insanity defense. Um, and they're also at the forefront in thinking about medical understandings of the insanity defense because it was so important for the Inquisition to issue, um, um, to, to hinge their verdict on a definitive diagnosis. Um, they they want proof, right? They want evidence. Um, so they're marshalling in all these doctors and in the process becoming un- unwitting, I would argue, um, agents of, of medicalization in this larger story of the Enlightenment. So um, on the one hand, the the Inquisition um, is, is very much an, an unenlightened institution. You know, a lot of the philosophers um, excoriate against them. Um, you know, their index of prohibited books is, you know, is all the bestsellers of the Enlightenment. Um, and they're stamping down on a lot of uh, kind of revolutionary thinking. Um, but on the other hand, they're very um, progressive thinking, for, for lack of a better word, um, when it comes to thinking about mental illness, uh, when it comes to thinking about who deserves the insanity defense and on what grounds. Um, and they're very creative when it comes to thinking about the role that institutions and the Hospital de San Hipólito in particular play in the in the in the management of, of mental illness. So um, I, I think that was a, a big part part of the story is the role of the Inquisition, not just in, in this Enlightenment story, um, but really in, um, um, in, in, in these hospitals. So I think it's kind of so funny. I think it's also like a modern expectation to find physicians in the past. I myself, you know, have suffered from this, like I'm and my dissertation is tentatively titled A World with No Doctors because it was such an obvious truth back then, but perhaps for us today it's hard to imagine a world without without doctors. Um but yeah, it's so interesting to think about these other actors that we usually don't pay much attention to, right? But I I think I, I want us to talk about the Inquisition. You've been talking about it uh, since the very beginning, and you tell us it is such an important institution, and the records for the Mexican Inquisitions are so rich. I feel so jealous when I read books about them, because there's so many details and so many cases, and they're so fascinating. And so I want to bring 
into your conversation uh, an example you use. And you use this example to introduce chapter three of the book that is titled, It is Easy to Mistake a Heretic for a Madman. And so in that chapter, you you begin by discussing the case of a mulatto minor called Teodoro Francisco de Aspe Guerra, who came before the headquarters of the Holy Office to declare himself the victim of hechiceria, so of bewitchment. So he was having visions, hearing voices, having hallucinations, and he accused his estranged brother and sister-in-law, as well as some neighbors, of being responsible for his state of mind. So the Inquisition eventually dismissed Teodoro's uh, denunciation, or they, they attributed his state of mind to what they called a melancholic imagination. So even though Teodoro was not sent to San Hipólito as a patient, you use this case to demonstrate that increasingly in the 18th century, cases such as this one were attributed to mental illnesses. So in this case, melancholia, uh, instead of being attributed to cases of hechiceria, right? And so you, this is part of the process mm-hmm. of medicalization you're trying to track. And one of the things I found really interesting in that case is that you said perhaps a century earlier in the late 17th century, they would have taken this denunciation more seriously. Perhaps a century earlier, they would have investigated or even prosecuted some of the people he denounced. So, I mean, this is a counterfactual argument and we cannot be completely sure, but you find that there's increasing cases in which this argument about medical causes of a mental state are being put forward by inquisitors, also by doctors. So how, like, why is the Inquisition such kind of an important place for this discussion? Why was it in this institution rather than in other institutions where these discussions were being held? And what was it about the 18th century? Um, yeah, no, um, I, I love that case just because the denouncer Teodoro, he's so um, he's so vivid in his description of what's happening to him. Um, again, you wouldn't find that kind that level of detail um, in a um, in a in, in a hospital record. Physicians didn't keep that kind of of documentation, but there it is um, in the Inquisition's records. Um, someone talking in um, um, in rich detail about their about their symptoms and their hallucinations. It's great, um, and as as you point out, by the 18th century, um, and in this particular case, they were very quick to um, dismiss the charges and say, you know, he's not he's not mad. He's he's melancholic. So, you know, by the 18th century, um, the Inquisition um, is increasingly dismissing these um, charges or, or issuing the insanity defense, um, and they're issuing it on, on medical, medical grounds, um, often with a, a medical diagnosis, although not always. Um, and as I, I, I go on to point out, um, you know, the insanity defense has um, a deep religious underpinnings. So within the context of the Inquisition, and this is probably what made it one of the ideal institutions for which to study this phenomena, you know, all sin needed to be, um, uh, there needed to be intent in order for heresy to take place. So um, one needed to be um, cognizant if they committed a sin. Um, So we had long been known that if somebody was mentally ill, um, and they committed a crime. Um, they they weren't guilty because they had never really sinned in the first place. So uh, this creates a situation where um, it's it's the Inquisition that is long invested in in crimes of interiority. Um, in interior states, um, they want to know conscience. They they want to know what somebody was thinking at the time that they committed a particular crime. Um, you know, the, the definition for heresy meant that, you know, there, there needed to be a lot of intent um, in order for um, heresy to occur. The crime needed to be um, w- with full intention and cognizance. And um, and, and even then, you know, um, the suspect had to in- insist that um, not, was not able to, to recant um, in order to be um, tried as a, a heretic. So the, the, the bar for being a heretic was high. So, so, so the Inquisition has long been motivated uh, to, to diagnose interiority. And I, I, I don't know why exactly 
by the 18th century, and a lot of it might have to do with the professionalization of, of physicians and physicians trying to kind of make a pitch for themselves, um, but doing so within the context of the inquisitorial courts. Um, so by the 18th century, um, the Inquisition is increasingly wedded to more medical standards of proof. So it, it isn't enough for them to suspect that somebody is mentally ill. Um, they want a concrete medical um, diagnosis. Um, and particularly in the in certain cases, um, in, in really kind of complicated cases, um, they're looking for um, a firm medical diagnosis. Um, so they're increasingly um, turning to physicians. Um, and it's, it's this pattern that you see over and over again. They're, they're calling in doctors to help them diagnose um, interiority. Um, they had long been in the business of assessing inward states, um, but now they, they increasingly want more um, empirical standards of proof. Um, so that's kind of the story that I'm telling there. Um, but as I as I point out, it's a it's a story of medicalization, but it's it's also a, a very messy story in that um, inquisitors are invested in medical standards of proof, but uh, at the same time they are increasingly apprehensive that a suspect might be feigning. Um, this was their greatest fear. It wasn't how you differentiate um, between kind of demonic possession and madness. It was how do you tell the difference between someone who is um, authentically ill um, and somebody who is just feigning for the purposes of of, of dodging um, punishment. Um, so um, the the fear that somebody is feigning is is constantly um, in 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 their deliberations. Um, so these trials often really spiral into. Um, these kind of long paper trails as they're kind of marshalling on all these doctors um, and trying to figure out what to do with particular suspects. And, and it often was the case, not always, but it was often the case that at some point they would get frustrated and they would default to the hospital um, as a strategy for managing uh, mental illness, and um, I make the case there that in some in um, in some cases the the hospital very much functioned as a as a real laboratory, a kind of a, a site of observation uh, for which to scrutinize the authenticity um, and the progression of symptoms um, as the Inquisition is trying to kind of issue verdicts um, and is seeking uh, more empirical forms of proof um, in the late 18th century um, in a way that it just hadn't done um, a century ago. Yes, and so the Inquisition is an institution that was at the forefront for devising new models of undertaking the complexities of human reasoning and the nuances of intent, right? So mm-hmm. so for our listeners, it's kind of really interesting because like an institution, it's, it's seen in a different light, an institution that, as we said earlier, has been portrayed as the antithesis to modernity, right? Um, to science or... Um, to all of these things, um, so I found that argument super interesting. Yes, and perhaps yes, when no, you first... um, and I was, um, I think I was very much inspired there with, um, I think it's, it's Irene Silverblatt right. kind of look who kind of says, you know, that this is a, um, this is a bureaucratic institution, right? Um, in very and in many ways, um, it's 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 pre-modern in many ways, but it's actually quite uh, modern um, in other ways. As in well. other ways, yeah, and you said like. This is a very bureaucratic institution. And one of the things I think listeners will find useful to know is that the Inquisition always relied on witnesses. But before the 18th century, it was more common that, you know, to rely on uh, neighbors, families, uh, priests, uh, sort of communal witnesses, let's call them like that. But increasingly, you find Mm -hmm. physicians were called in the 18th century, and there was this interest in kind of medicalizing or giving mental states a natural explanation, right? Um, And this is central Mm -hmm. to your argument, but it's also important to your argument, not only the Inquisition, but also the criminal secular courts. So in the 18th century, the Bourbon dynasty passed a series of reforms uh, that were meant to, among many other things, increase revenue, expand the colonial judiciary, uh, fortify the police force, and combat growing levels of crime. Yet this interest in law and order, unlike what some of followers of Foucault may think, and you've 
already said this, uh, this this interest uh, falls short in explaining why the criminally insane were sent to San Hipólito, right? So it wasn't just to confine them and control them. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a paternalistic leniency in this policy. Can you tell us more about the criminal courts? You mentioned in the chapter dedicated to criminal courts that these cases were different, right? Because the criminal courts are designed for a different purpose. So usually it was people perhaps saying that they were mad when the crime occurred, um, or perhaps, you know, similar to the Inquisition, it could happen that they eventually for some reason became mad in the process but it, it's a different type of judicial process or court uh-huh. so exactly. what what is it about you know criminal courts that you want us our listeners to know all right so so you know quite quite surprisingly um the the secular criminal court it, it's kind of in, in counterintuitive they were a lot more um backward thinking, I think, when it came to um, deploying the insanity defense. Um, They were latecomers um, in embracing um, the medicalization of insanity, um, and they were far more pragmatic um, in their use of a hospital like San Hipólito um, for the purposes of, of managing um, the problem of, of criminal insanity. Um, and in many ways, um, the, the story that I tell here is the story of a kind of a failed enlightenment. So um, as you point out, this is the period when the Bourbon reforms are at their pinnacle, Um, when there's lots of new uh, policies being implemented to combat what is perceived to be escalating levels of of urban crime. Um, So there's efforts to expand uh, the judiciary. Um, There's the rise of new law enforcement um, agencies, efforts to kind of remap the city um, in in an attempt to better combat crime. Um, And at the same time, um, Enlightenment reformers are are calling for the reform of criminal law, um, saying that um, punishment um, in criminal cases should be just um, and it should be more proportionate to the crime. Um, so this is kind of the era where scholars locate the birth of the prison. But when you look at the actual uh, cases themselves, I, I think I referred to them at one point um, as, as circuses, um, because, you know, when, while all these reforms are happening um, in cases involving insanity, it's it's quite messy. Um, so for um, the, the secular criminal court, you know, uh, the Inquisition, um, by contrast, is a, is a tribunal of faith. Um, they're interested in states of interiority. Um, they're, they're interested in the kind of the innermost recesses of thought, um, in cognitive states. Um, you don't really see that level of sophistication in the secular criminal context. They're willing to issue an insanity defense, but they're not interested in, um, in questions of intent um, on the same um, level. That's not happening there. Um, what they're interested in is the problem of how do we manage individuals who are uh, potentially violent um, and potentially prone to cause problems on the street, potentially prone to disturb the public peace. Um, so for, for them, the how, um, um, the, the why, I mean, uh, mattered far less to them than the how. Um, how do we manage criminals um, who are who are technically innocent but potentially prone to violence? Um, so the hospital comes into play there uh, as as a way to uh, contain and to confine criminals uh, that are uh, potentially um, violent. And um, and as I point out, this isn't a story of criminalization of the mentally ill or of social repression. Um, it's a story really of kind of the ad hoc implementation of the insanity defense of um, of the role of uh, local authorities, of, of neighbors, of family um, in deciding how, what do we do with the violently ill. Um, and as I also point out, um, to get to this point about paternalistic uh, leniency, um, even while there's these calls for the reform of of uh, criminal law, the kind of law that the justices are falling back on are, are really these kind of old uh, medieval laws, um, which are have long protected the mentally ill from unwarranted um, punishment. Um, so it's a um, it, it's really their story of, of a kind of failed enlightenment project to make the law more kind of rust, uh, more uh, more just um, in this more modern sense. Yes, very interesting. It's like what we've been talking about, a combination of tradition, 
versus a combination of modern ideas, even if that product is a failed one, <laughs> we see that. And that is what defines the Hispanic Enlightenment. I, I believe you mentioned that at some point in the book. Um, okay, so I think, I believe we've covered the main arguments some of the content of your chapters. Listeners know that we cannot talk about everything. I like to usually tell listeners about how your the books are organized. So this book is divided in five chapters. The first two chapters are, in a way, the more detailed story of San Hipólito as an institution. So the first chapter talks about the foundation of the hospital by Bernardino Álvarez and, and places this story in a context of Iberian imperial expansion, both in Europe and the Americas. The chapter, the second chapter deals more uh, particularly with the history of San Hipólito in the 18th century Um I mean, also some, a little bit about what happened in the 17th century, um, a decline that the hospital experienced. And then in the 18th century, there were some uh, transformations and renovations. Um, and this happened in the context of the Bourbon reform. So these are the first two chapters. Is there something that, I mean, this is a long history. Listeners will, I'm sure they would love to go and read the books and find out more details, but is there something about this super long history that perhaps you want, we missed and you want our listeners to know? Um, I think you, I think you outlined the general kind of um, trajectory of this hospital from kind of this um, more kind of medieval institution, um, you know, dedicated to hospitality, um, dedicated to Pobres Dementes, and it's it's kind of uneven medicalization um, in the 18th century um, under kind of the the, the Bourbon reforms um, and the role of religious reformers in kind of reshaping that space. Um, I think what I would like to flag for listeners is the discussion of um, of the hospital's patient population um, that occurs in chapter two um, based on. Um, um, San Hipólito's most comprehensive um, surviving um, register of patient admissions. Um, so I, I was fortunate enough to find this um, um, this register of, I think, roughly kind of a little over 30 years of, of patient admissions. Um, and it's a, um, it's, it's a really nice counterpoint um, to the cases um, because the cases, um, the Inquisition and the criminal cases um, are really the heart of the book. Um, but in many ways, um, those, those cases are exceptional, right? Um, there are people that uh, got into trouble um, and made it, made their way to these, um, to these records. But o- over here, you get a fuller picture of what the patient population looked like. Um, and lots of stories of patients um, who, um, really whose stories are, are forgotten. They're just these kind of faint glimpses of um, that were jotted down by the um, enfermero mayor, the, the head nurse um, who kept track of which patients came in, um, when they got discharged, um, who died in the hospital, who escaped, um, who, who committed suicide. Um, so I, I think that's what I, have, I would like to flag for readers. And it was, so it was mostly men, right? So at some point women were taken into his hospital, but you say like at some point it seemed that it was mostly men, that there was another hospital, if I'm not mistaken, it was Divino Salvador that was just for women. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we know that most, most of the patients we're talking about are men, right? It's exclusively men. Yeah. So um, I believe they may have admitted women. It's, it's never quite clear. Um, they had ambitions to admit women. Um, but by the by the 17th century, um, um, it's, it's exclusively a male hospital. Um, and by that point, um, there is a hospital, El Divino Salvador. Um, para pobres mujeres dementes that is established um, exclusively for the problem of, of, of mad women. And that hospital, um, unfortunately, its records simply eluded me. I, I could not um, locate them. So I, I would have loved to have written about both, both of the institutions, um, but I can only gesture to Divino Salvador um, whenever possible. Oh, that's so unfair to women. <laughs> but, but I mean, hopefully, I don't know if it's possible, you know, in archives, things may turn up later. That can happen or they may be lost forever. And it's a loss for humanity. Um, but it's a great thing that you were able to find these detailed records of 
one single institution for 300 years. It's amazing. Um, so perhaps, you know, listeners, you also want to know that the three remaining chapters so are about what we've been discussing. So chapter three and four about the, are about the Inquisition and chapter five is about the criminal courts. So I, I want listeners to know that these three chapters are filled with stories about people. <laughs> we've just talked about one of them, Teodoro, but there are many more cases, many more examples that talk about, you know, human beings. Um, so maybe, I don't know, Christina, if you want... I mean, you can talk about whatever you want, but any of these stories kind of stood out for you? Or is there something about the human side of the story that you want our listeners to hear more about? Um, I'll, I'll mention my my favorite patient. But yeah, no, the, the, the human side, you know, really comes through the cases. Sometimes when you're working with these and you're, you're being very academic about it, you, you forget the real... Um, the, the real suffering that's at the heart of a lot of these cases. Um, that's a great point. Um, but I think my favorite patient to talk about is Jose Ventura Gonzalez, um, who was uh, nicknamed Tebanillo. And his case isn't that that compelling or that um, interesting. I think what, what what's most interesting is that he's he's the patient that left behind a huge bundle of, of sketches uh, that the Inquisition that the Inquisition kept. So um, I have these um, great drawings um, by this uh, mental patient. Um, he was institutionalized twice at San Nicolito. Uh They uh, his I think the first time he was institutionalized, he, he got out. Um, and then he got into trouble with the Inquisition and they institutionalized him again. Um, and they, um, um, and, and the second round, they preserved his writings, um, which is a, a, a combination of poetry, of prose, very hard to make out, um, and these great drawings. And, and he was a, uh, he was an embroiderer by occupation. So some of the drawings are actually his, his embroidery. And you can see little pin marks where he was stitching. Um, and then other, other drawings of pornographic content, um, which clearly um, incensed, incensed the Inquisition and may have um, uh, informed their verdict to um, ultimately send them back to San Hipólito. Um, and I make the, the point that um, that the drawings themselves kind of materialize um, the, the larger problem of diagnosing um, locura in the Inquisition courts, um, because you have this um, here you have clear evidence that heretical uh, statements were made, uh, that there is a heretical blasphemous thinking at work here. But yet, how do you know what the intent was, what the person's cognitive state was? Um, this is what I call um, in the book um, the inquisitor's quandary, um, this kind of moral uh, predicament that inquisitors find themselves in um, as they're trying to decide whether to issue somebody the insanity defense or or to punish them for the crime. Yes, and those drawings, there are many of these drawings in the, they're in the book, listeners. So it's amazing. It's amazing the richness of the of the inquisitorial records. I I think it's this type of records can can give historians so much to work on and with. So okay, we arrive to the conclusion of your book. This takes us to the 19th century, the closing decades of the Spanish rule, the early years of the Republic. So in this period, members of the Order of San Hipólito remain in the hospital, I think for a few decades, two decades perhaps, if I remember correctly. But they suffer the steady infiltration of a handful of ambitious medical men right? And they were armed, many of them, with the latest psychiatric theories of Europe. So ironically, you say this, the people, the the drivers of locuras, of madness medicalization, lost control of a process they helped unleash. So what can you tell us about, very briefly, right? So our listeners kind of, kind of think about your conclusion. Uh, what can you tell us about this moment where physicians gain control of what we now call psychiatry? Yeah, so um, the book kind of ends where I think traditional accounts of, of psychiatry begin with the, um, the 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 rise of kind of early psychiatrists or the um, the alienists um, and their um, 
their efforts to kind of infiltrate um, and gain a monopoly um, on the ho- on the hospital. So um, the rise of psychiatry um, is is predicated on um, the ability of medical men to monopolize an institution that had once been governed by religious personnel, um, religious um, figures. Um, so to get a monopoly over that space um, so that they can transform it into a site of, of clinical observation. Um, and so they have ready access, right, to a, a wide body of patients uh, for which to develop um, theories of, of, of how the mind works or, um, or, or does not. Um, so that's the kind of the story I, I gesture to um, at the very end. Um, um, but as I point out there, um, um, this new kind of stage in San Ipolito's history where, you know, psychiatry is, um, is, is launched within the ward of San Ipolito. Um, this new phase um, isn't the isn't the beginning of medicalization, as I as I point out um, in the conclusion. It's 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 simply this new phase, right? Um, with kind of a, a phase that we're much more familiar um, with. So um, it's it's kind of the um, the the end of this other world. And um, as as you just noted, Lisette, um, um the, the the brothers of San Ipolito, um, the the order is dissolved um, with, with independence, but they. We remain in the hospital for another two decades. Um, so it's it's I'm watching this all unfold. So um, yes, they 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 um, lose control of this institution that they had once so imperfectly managed. Okay, so I'm going to make the obvious question that many people make about this type of stories, but I'd like to make them because I believe it's important to think about the present. Um, it's kind of uh, why is this history important, right? Um, so San Ippolito closed its doors in 1910. And perhaps some are, are, I hope many of our listeners, perhaps they are not super familiar with Mexican history or Latin American history more generally. So why do you think it's important that we recover, revisit these stories about the past today? Um, gosh, that's, that's a great question. I don't even know if I answered that successfully in my epilogue. I was so I was so tired um, when I was trying to gesture to the present. Um, but you know, 1910 is isn't just the official close of San Ipolito. It's it's the opening of La Castañeda, um, Mexico's first um, modern um, psychiatric establishment. So um, it's this it's this interesting comparison where you see the rise of. Or, or the the opening of the first modern psychiatric asylum, um, with all the glories that accompany its opening, but also all the baggage that um, psychiatry carries as well, um, and the kind of close of um, of this older colonial religious model for man uh, for managing mental health. Um, so it's this interesting juxtaposition, and you know, I I I try to tell a kind of a story of. There's there's obvious change there in the kind of the closing of one and the aperture of another, um, but there's a lot of continuities um, in both of those histories. You know, both institutions face similar problems. Um, they face problems of um, you know, in in the case of of Mexico, of you know, religious models of charitable care um, still. Um, still asserting themselves um, well into the 19th um, and 20th century. Um, and they faced a similar problem of, of how do you manage a condition which often there, there, there isn't a cure. You know, this is something that plagued um, uh, San Ipolito, plagued um, 18th century uh, religious personnel um, who were managing madness, but it, it plagued psychiatrists as well. This is one of the things that's kind of hindered you know, psychiatry's um, ascendancy is that um, they're often limited when it comes to making claims about curability. So, I mean, it's a it's a story of lots of continuity, and you see sort of when medicine kind of reaches its its limits. Um, and I, I guess I will say why this story um, is important for the present. You know, you know, we talk a lot about mental health care um, now, and you know, this is in the aftermath of of deinstitutionalization. So. Um, you know, widespread movements to um, shutter asylums because of the atrocities that were committed inside of them. But um, we're kind of back at square one in a sense. You know, what do you um, do with people that were San Ipolito's original patients, um, poor people, people of, of limited means, people who didn't have family, 
um, and people who needed um, a, a shelter, a, a, a custodial um, solution to the management of mental health. I mean, I think this is a problem that modern societies deal with um, um, on, on a present basis. Um, uh, so that's, I think that's why the story is, um, I, I think, still relevant today. And I agree. <laughs> Challenges <laughs> that we're facing today, you know, COVID, I mean, has brought up the topic of mental health mm-hmm. uh, pressingly. We cannot avoid it. So I I think your book is a tremendous contribution. It's a great read, listeners. Believe me, it reads wonderfully. Uh, the cases are super interesting. So I cannot recommend it enough. So before before I let you go, Christina, maybe you can tell us what you're working on. What are your current or future projects so our listeners kind of look forward to the future? So um, I'm I'm still I'm I'm trying to launch a, a second book now, and I'm still interested in I'm trying to go back and address the questions that I don't think I got to address um, with this book. So I'm I'm still I'm still interested in kind of these other questions I had about colonial hospitals. And um, I think I, I think the question I'm asking myself is, you know, what is colonial about a colonial hospital? So um, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm um, I'm I'm interested in. Um, Hernan Cortez's hospital um, and the history of kind of military and colonial expansion um, and the rise of these institutions and the rise of public health. Um, I'm hoping to do more work on indigenous hospitals um, and their kind of role in um, religious conversion. Um, and the other piece that I'm, I'm working on, and I'm a little more further along in the, on that regard, is um, the nursing orders. Um, so not just the order of San Hipólito, which um, ran about 12 hospitals in colonial Mexico, um, a very active hospital order. Um, but the order of San Juan de Dios was another hospital order. So um, I'm interested, I'm trying to write something right now on the history of nursing and um kind of religious nursing as, as part of this other project on um, public health in colonial Latin America. Love it. Can't wait to hear more about it, especially about San Juan de Dios. I am, you know, in New Granada. There was, They're all over the place. They are all over <laughs> the place. Were, global order. They were they quite were. impressive. They were. They were. They keep popping up in my documents. <laughs> <They> do. <laughs> so, so please, please publish <laughs> so I can read and yeah. learn more. Um, but, you know, for now, thank you so much. I'm super grateful for your time and for this book. And this was a wonderful conversation. No, thank, thank you so you. much. I, I appreciate the thought you put into this. Okay. Bye-bye, listeners.